Polyhaven is a online asset library for 3D assets like HDRIs, textures, and 3D models. And we release all of this for free under the public domain. Sometimes that just opens a can of worms. I work in animation and visual effects. I don't actually make that stuff anymore. I make the stuff that other people use to make those things. So it's absolute freedom. I have no idea what's next. Hello everyone, my name is DJ and this is Subsurface Talks, the podcast where I talk with interesting guests from CGI industry, mainly Blender community, but not only. And today I'm very happy to have a special guest, Mr. Greg Zahl, hey. founder of Polyhaven. So I think I have a very high probability of guessing that you are using some of his stuff in your renders. Hello, Greg. Really hey. privileged to meet you uh, here. And um, can you tell a few words about your person, what, what you do, and how you started uh, with 3D, stuff like that. Yeah, sure. So, um, wow, well, I mean, it's it's been a while. I, it's been a while since I've thought about how, how things started, actually. But at the moment, uh, I'm working full-time on Polyhaven with a small team of, I think, about, I think it's five also full-time employees with me. Um, some of them are in the office here, and some of them are other parts of the country and some of them, well, the country being South Africa, that's where we're based. And then we, we work with a few people uh, across the world, uh, mainly contractors doing some, some, some regular work for, for textures and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, basically Polyhaven is a online asset library for 3D assets like HDRIs, textures, and 3D models. And we release all of this for free under the public domain. Um, and my job at the moment is just to pretty much just keep that going. I, I, it's rare that I actually work on any assets themselves. I used to do all of the HDRIs. I think we're probably getting to the point where less than half the HDRIs on the site are actually mine. Um, they used to be mostly mine, but at the moment, you know, we have other, other photographers who are shooting things now, and we're doing a lot of texture work and uh, quite a lot of 3D models as well with the community. Um, so at this point, there's there's not much actual artwork that's mine or assets, and I'm just here to kind of keep the show running and do the website things. You know, that's that's my other job as the web developer, and um, I also do a few add-ons. Uh, some of them are included in Blender by default, like Node Wrangler. Um, but yeah, that's I, I couldn't. It's difficult for me to answer the question when people ask me like, "What do you do for a living?" And then you know, I sigh and I, I think, "Wow, how am I going to explain this?" You know, it's, it's it's potentially a long story with a lot of niche things. So sometimes I just say oh, I'm a I'm a photographer, or I I work in animation, and that's hopefully shuts them up. But <laughs> sometimes that just opens a can of worms. But yeah, um, I think that pretty much answers your question. I've kind of forgotten what it was by now. Yeah, it's got um, yeah, like an intro introduction of your person, and it's uh, like the question. Uh, what do you do for a living? Is like I think it's hard to, to answer for for many 3D artists in general like yeah maybe maybe if they say something about you know vfx like i work in movies or animation or maybe you know, game development or stuff yeah. like that and people like, like oh 3d graphics that's yeah that's okay. that's normally what, how it what starts exactly is that i tell people like oh i, I work in animation and visual effects and like oh do you make uh you make video games you make you know tv ads or anything and i say i don't actually make that stuff anymore i kind of i make the stuff that other people use to make those things. So 
it's it's a little more of a niche within that niche and a lot of people are not really aware of the the details of of what's involved in in making games or animations yeah so um, another question that i have for that uh, like to to make it even more niche or even more uh, hard to explain to to regular people uh, it, it would be about the, um, the business model of polyhaven which which was the topic of your uh, of your blender conference presentation last year yeah and i was pretty impressed by it uh, like it was quite like uh, you know an eye opener that that things are possible that people would think you know it would, if you told someone that uh, one can make business out of giving stuff away for free they probably you know knock themselves in the head right. and think that you're a loony like i, I remember <laughs> one sketch by monte python where there was like a guy uh, who who was like getting stuff for charity and there was like a businessman who was trying to understand what it's all about like people are giving <laughs> money like, for free <laughs> it's, it's like a great yeah. business model right i mean <laughs> it's it's hard it's it's really hard that that i would say is the thing that keeps me up at night it's you know i i work with the guys on on textures and developing um you know different ways to scan things and figure out the logistics of how we're gonna get where we need to be and even what the strategy is of what we want to capture and why and that sort of thing but the main the main challenge for me is making sure that we can keep doing that financially, making sure that we, um, you know, we employ people now. It's not just this little project that I used to run by myself with my own little HDRIs. Now, you know, I have responsibilities of, of people's lives, essentially, and figuring out ways to release content for free in a in a way that is sustainable. Uh, in terms of you know the finances and getting money in to pay people to make those things to keep releasing them for free it's really difficult and there's not a lot of examples out there of um people doing that well in, in ways that i like um and it, you know it's been a few years since we started trying um originally it was just patreon so just donations um and I had a few, well, it's still, it's pretty much quite similar to what it used to be. There's a few tiers on Patreon where you can um, kind of like reward incentives. If you donate at this level, then you get this kind of reward. And if you donate a little bit more, then you get extra rewards as well. Um, and and that's quite an interesting way to, you know, I, I, I really, in the beginning especially, I was trying not to make it seem like a, subscription service or like a membership thing nobody likes subscription services you know like adobe photoshop you would rather pay that up front than pay a monthly fee um so i i didn't want to do that and i wanted to try and keep it focused on rewards only uh, nowadays i'm not so sure i can say that that's always the case but we'll get to that a bit later um and that was that was the main way that i supported myself at least and then when that patreon uh, donations grew uh, i started getting contractors on board to help me shoot hdris as well and i started working with rob on the texture side of things um and sometime around then we started doing or trying to do 3d models as well um, and eventually we we decided to try doing advertising on the website because the website was fairly popular and advertising is you know one of those <laughs> 
one of those things that everybody does. And it's like, it's especially if you look at YouTube and services like that, it is the way, almost the only way that you can make money by creating content is, is through advertising, uh, which I, I am a little frustrated about that. And if, if I could remove the ads from my website today, I definitely would. It would make me much happier. But uh, ultimately, we decided to try it out and it worked fairly well. And, and what happened was it was, you know, doing the ads and the Patreon together was successful enough that we could actually start Polyhaven as you know it now because it used to just be HDRI Haven and Texture Haven and 3D Model Haven, which hopefully nobody really knew that much about because it was it was tiny. Um, and then we, we joined together and we formed an actual company because of the ad advertising revenue. Um, and then, you know, things, things grew a little bit and they, I would say they started to stagnate a little bit and we were quite comfortable with how things were working with the Patreon and the ad revenue. Um, and we were trying to do some corporate sponsorships as well, which is effectively just Patreon, but for companies to give us more money, uh, and then get their logo on our website. It was effectively just a separate, bigger Patreon tier, I guess. Um, and then I think it was last year sometime when the Blender Asset Browser uh, was introduced around 3.2, if I believe, somewhere around 3.2 to 3.5, the Asset Browser was, uh, was added to Blender. Um, and I saw this as as a next step for us. Um, I was always interested in making a plugin for Polyhaven uh, for Blender, where it would make it much easier to get our assets into your scene. Uh, but it was always a bit of a challenge to try and figure out how to do that. Because, I mean, I'd, I'd written a, a plugin years ago, I think 2014, uh, called Gaffer that I'm selling and still selling to this day. It, it was one of the very first commercial plugins for Blender. Um, and that was basically, it turned into a bit of a HDRI plugin where you, it helps you add HDRIs to your scene and tweak the settings for the, for the lighting and that sort of thing. That's, that's one part of it anyway. Um, and I always wanted to do that for the textures and the models as well and to kind of improve the HDRI side of things as well. And then when the, the asset browser was introduced, I saw this as like the obvious solution to what everybody wants is to have all of our assets in Blender already. You don't have to go to a, web, a website to download them um, and save them in a folder and choose different resolutions and, you know, import them into your scene. And it's just, you know, you can do that, but it's a little slow. Um, so we decided to write an add-on for Blender. Um, and I was writing the add-on before I had even really figured out how we wanted to release it. Because, you know, like I said, making um this kind of free content website sustainable financially is is a huge challenge and i knew there was massive value in this in this add-on uh, that adds all of our stuff into blender by default so I, it took me a while to decide what to actually do with that whether we would release the add-on for free whether we would include it in our patreon as a as a subscription service thing or whether we would sell it as a separate standalone product uh, product on the blender market um, and in the end, we kind of did all three of those things. So that's 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 quite a tangent we could go down. But basically, we we give the the add on to all of our supporters on Patreon. I think at the five dollars here, and then we also sell the add on on the Blender market. And at the same time, because it's a Blender add on, 
and all Blender add-ons are licensed as GPL and they're open source, you know, there's this weird moral gray area of of sharing commercial Blender add-ons around within your your community and your friends because it's it feels like piracy even though it's free and an open well it's free is questionable but it's open source like legally there's nothing stopping you from buying an add-on on the blender market and giving it away just uploading it to twitter or anything you want but you don't really see that happen a lot in the blender community because people are generally quite uh respectful of, of the developer's time and the, and the product but i think the bigger the blender community gets the more often you're going to see that um, and maybe that's it's already quite common. I just haven't really been paying attention. But I, with all of uh, well the two commercial Blender add-ons that I've made, I made the decision to put them on GitHub so people can download them for free directly from from me or the Polyhaven page. So there's no question of like, oh, I'm pirating this add-on. It's it's like it's made available for free. And we have a small distinction between the, the GitHub version and the paid version, whether you get it through Patreon or through the Blender market. And that's just the early access to content. Um, and there's a little banner in the free version that says, hey, please donate. <laughs> uh, these assets are hard to make. So the early access is, is something that we are kind of getting more into now, where we have a huge backlog of assets that we've uploaded that haven't gone public yet. Um, because we we have a daily schedule pretty much where an asset goes live public every single day. But we don't upload things once a day. We upload them in, in bulk sometimes. So we have a couple of months of, of um, assets waiting to be published. So if you buy the add-on or, or you support us on Patreon, then you get early access to those assets. Um, so currently, since, since last year, I think it was August when we started, when we released the add-on uh, for sale on the Blender market and on Patreon, uh, and on GitHub as well, that's become almost our primary source of income. And we've now moved to an office, as you can see behind me, um, and hired a new, some new people and started working with them, a lot of new contractors. Um, so, you know, what what started as a fairly modest Patreon initiative of like, I'm just making this stuff for free. If you want to give me money, that's great. I'm just going to keep doing it. Has turned into, you know, this this massive thing where we're making a ton of assets all the time, and it takes a lot of money to support that effort. And I, whether I want to or not, I have to try and think about that uh, of like how we're going to keep things going. And you know, as things change, uh, Blender is is going to start potentially working on like online asset repositories built into Blender itself, maybe not enabled by default, but it's, it's going to be potentially a fairly officially supported thing. You know, how is that going to affect our income from the add-on sales? I don't know. So these are things that it's my job to try and figure out and hopefully not make any stupid decisions that annoy people too much, you know, like the, the Wikipedia banner at the, you know, this massive thing that takes up the top third of your screen on Wikipedia that says, if you donate now, uh, if if everybody reading this page donated now, then we would finish our funding campaign. That kind of thing is annoying. And, you know, it it's fair for Wikipedia to do that, but I don't like it. <laughs> and I'd rather try and avoid doing things I don't like just to make money. Mm, yeah, so... Um... One more thing that I was wondering about uh, when, when you kind of, uh, as you mentioned, you started it with, uh, with the HDRIs and then it kind of like 
developed into into a bigger library of different assets used by uh, 3D artists. Um, like how do you how do you kind of define the scope of of uh, what Polyhaven is aimed for? Like what is your target audience? Uh, is it like mostly uh, thought for uh, game dev artists or like it's a more general thing? Like uh, how do you narrow things down? Because you know 3D assets is such a wide a wide variety of things that can be digitalized and if yeah. you want to like draw people in you you probably have to have some kind of like a path like a yeah that's recognizable a thing i think uh for me it's always tempting to try new things like that that's what interests me and, and that's what motivates me in, in all my work is is trying new things and i tend to I tend to like figuring something out and once I figured it out, I'm, I'm done. I'm happy with it and I move on and I try to figure something new out, uh, which is a problem for, you know, multiple reasons. Sometimes you just got to stick with what, what you're good at and improve on it. But for, in terms of our target audience, um, or, or what we decide to work on, it comes down to with any business. Uh, a matter of priorities like what what do you what do you need to make that's going to be most effective to most people um, and at the same time accounting for what you want to make you know what you're motivated to do because that's huge for creative work nobody wants you know if if you you can't expect an artist to produce good work if they're not interested in what they're doing so for me, that's a massive consideration is, is are we actually working on things that we find interesting, not just what is most valuable to the community. Um, although we do definitely like consider that and we run some polls on Patreon and we have a bunch of statistics on our website about what kind of assets people are interested in. But, you know, if, if our team, if our artists are not interested in, in working on something mundane, like a thousand different asphalt textures, we're not going to do it, even if that would be the best idea. Um, in terms of, uh, the, the, I guess, target audience, you could say we're primarily focusing on on Blender users, just because that's what we know. Like we're Blender artists. I've been using Blender for well, fourteen years or so, something like that. Um, that's just what we're interested in. Like all of us, we really care about the Blender ecosystem and the, the Blender philosophy and just the whole community and open source nature of it is, is great. Uh, it's completely different from something like Unreal that's also free, but it's not open source. It's got this big corporate umbrella over it that you can feel. It's, it's like Epic controls the ecosystem. It's their ecosystem and you're using their software. Whereas with Blender, you know, Blender is, is yours. They don't, that's not their slogan for no reason. Like Blender is your 3D software. You can change it. Uh, you can influence it. You can go onto the dev talk forums or on, on the Blender chat and talk to the developer who makes your favorite feature and, and explain why you think something should change. And if you're right, they'll change it. That would never happen in something like Unreal or Maya. So that's why, one of the reasons why we focus on Blender is just because that's what we like. But at the same time, we do see it, you know, we see the industry outside of Blender and they have a need for our assets. 
Um, obviously, there's there's a lot of different asset stores that support more than just Blender, like the Unreal Marketplace, the Unity Store, uh, Fab, Sketchfab, that sort of thing. Um, and there's a lot of market for that. But there's still nobody really doing the the whole CC0 asset thing, which is a, a big deal for us, I think. For me, that's, it's a big deal, uh, comparing CC0 to CC BY, where you have to give attribution or royalty-free things where you can't include that asset in your project if you want to sell it or, you know, there's conditions to how you're allowed to use it and that sort of thing. Um, so I still think there's, there's a huge use case for, for our assets within other software. So we do make sure we publish everything as FBX and USD and obviously for textures, just the image files directly. So anybody can use it. It just might need a little bit of effort to get it into your software. Whereas for Blender, we try to make sure that everything works out of the box immediately and you don't have to try and like download separate things and set them up yourself. As you mentioned, like the, the assets are kind of like software agnostic to, to a degree. Some, yeah. some of them are more, some of them are less like if you if you go into the area of animation, you probably get more roadblocks or stuff that are more sophisticated. But three D models are generally transferable. Textures are just image files, as you mentioned. Yeah. And I was wondering because like you know, uh, Blender ecosystem is quite like quite big compared to compared to other softwares, which are um, like quite niche. If you if you probably if you compare it to to the blender user base because they are paid tools they are very professionalized and uh you know but there are probably there are users who are able to you know spend more money sometimes because the blender user base is uh, there's a lot of hobbies people who yeah. are just doing 3d for fun right Th that's that's a pretty good point that so I, I think that's a fairly big consideration uh in terms of the the funding model as well um at least originally when we were primarily based on Patreon and, and ad revenue, that was a huge deal because what you rely on with a donation model and an advertising model is scale. You rely on having millions of people seeing your website to make even a small amount of funding because you get so it's such a small percentage of people who are willing to give you money for no reason. <laughs> like you're you're asking people to give you money just because they like what you do, not because they can get anything out of you. And in order for that to make financial sense, you have to have an absolutely massive audience of millions of people. So in that sense, that model only works in, in the Blender community. That definitely would never work for something like Maya. And potentially for Unreal, I think you might be able to pull it off depending on what you're doing. But... That's yeah. It's it's one of the main reasons why I never really considered going after my 3ds Max or anything like that. But now that we started creating the plugin, and I can see, you know, how things have changed by selling products, maybe it's worth considering creating products for other software. You know, making an Unreal plugin to add all of our assets to Unreal. Maybe that makes more financial sense because, as you said, the people using Maya and 3ds Max, they're they're willing to spend money on things that improve their work. Whereas for Blender, you have to do a lot more convincing if you want to sell a product because like, like you said, it's mostly hobbyists and people who are not necessarily invested in that tool. But for something like 3ds Max, 
pretty much early professional people use 3ds max no hobbyist is going to just use 3ds max unless it happens to be what they were taught at university five years ago and now that's all they really are comfortable using and they're probably not paying for a license for it because it's expensive if they're just a hobbyist so then at least you can maybe charge a little bit more for your products or at least have a little bit more of a of a confidence that you'll be able to sell it more to more people just because they're used to spending money on things for their work but i don't know it's for me it's it's more about what i'm interested in doing and i don't want to learn 3ds max in order to learn how to write a plugin and then i have to support that plugin i just don't care about 3ds max i just I like i like blender and i want to keep using blender and maybe if somebody could convince me that it's worth worthwhile and show me some spreadsheets, then maybe I could hire a developer to write a 3ds Max plugin. But at the moment, I don't really see if that's possible or, or interesting to work on anyway. I've, I've seen that happening, uh, voluntary work made for a Luxcore render that it had like a 3ds Max port, uh, like plugin for using a Luxcore render inside of 3ds Max. And it was like done by a developer, just like as a hobby project probably. Right. So what I wanted to ask was um, the aspect that you mentioned uh, of your assets that is uh, also differentiating Holy Haven from other asset libraries uh, online is the CC0 license. It's not like the, the most popular one. Most, yeah. most of them are somehow, somehow limited in licensing. Like, for example, you have the, uh, for Unreal, you have this whole uh, Quixel Megascan library, which you can sort of use free inside unreal engine but there are you know there are limitations if you want to use it outside you have to be subscribing and stuff like that so usually there's some kind of a catch with cc0 it's like fully open you can do whatever you want with it yeah not even have to credit right yeah exactly that's that was quite important uh you know in the beginning when i started making hdris and uploading them i think on my blog first i gave away the, like free versions under cc by and that started that made me start to think about what that means requiring people to give attribution to you and practically what that means is although it's not specifically implied that you can't use it commercially if you have to give attribution for something there are so many commercial cases where you just can't give attribution for something if you're making a billboard or a mobile ad or a tv ad or almost any commercial project you can think of, where are you going to give that attribution? You can't put in the bottom of your billboard some text to say, oh, this, this background was provided by Polyhaven. It's not practical. So what I had was a lot of people contacting me saying, can we buy a license to use this without attribution? And even then, when things were very small, like it was, it was quite a few people who were interested in that. And I thought... You know, that's that's an interesting business model, but it's complicated because it's it's hard to enforce. Um, and it's similar to the the mega scans issue where like it, it is technically possible to use those things for free in Blender. Nothing's physically stopping you from doing that, other than you know, that knowledge in the back of your head that Epic says no, please, please don't do that. You're only allowed to do it in Unreal, and if you want to do it somewhere else, you need to buy a license. Um, and I didn't really want to deal with that. So I started releasing them. Um, I think 
I, I could be remembering this wrong, but when I, when I started HDRI Haven, I was selling everything. And then I had a 1K resolution for free. And I believe I, I did use CC BY for pretty much most of the time that I was selling HDRIs. And that was when people would like want to buy the license just so that they could use it commercially. But when I started wanting to give things away for free, I realized that CC BY was not really useful because it's it's limiting. Like if that's your only option, CC BY, you can't use it commercially. It's just it's just a roadblock. So it has to be CC zero or there has to be some other kind of custom license. So I decided to go with CC zero because it is you know, it's it's absolute freedom. There are no restrictions or limitations. It's essentially without copyrights as far as that's legally possible. You can take our content and upload it to another store and sell it. That's legally fine. You know, it's not very nice, but people do it and there's legally nothing wrong with it. It seems like it's a dangerous approach because someone could like really um, fork the Polyhaven, right? And uh, make his own. Yeah, uh, and it's people like do. it's almost the same with Blender, right? You, you, could, exactly. you, you can, and people do that. But you know, there's there's the main force behind Blender with Blender Foundation, and it's kind of keeping it going. Yeah, what I find is it's um, there, there's there's two things to think about when people you know fork Blender and try to sell it, or or take our content and try to sell it, or monetize it some other way. Um, on the one hand, it's not super significant because of scale. You know, we we're already fairly well known. We have millions of visitors per month, and relative to that, somebody taking our content and selling it, it's going to be have a much smaller audience. So in that case, it doesn't really hurt us. Like we're not losing any any money or any views or anything from people stealing our content essentially and, and pretending it's theirs and, and uploading it somewhere else. What really happens is it hurts the people who are conned into buying it. If they don't know that it's it's already available for free and they're convinced to pay money to somebody who didn't make that thing so that they can get it, then that hurts them, that they, they lose money for no reason, thinking that it's, it wasn't already for free and they don't know the original source. Um, and I think... For Blender, it's the same thing. You know, if you accidentally, <laughs> if you don't know about Blender and you accidentally purchase this 3D software from some website thinking it's it's amazing, that sucks for you, but it doesn't really hurt Blender. This uh, licensing problem is uh, kind of like one of the one of the controversy uh, points uh, with AI, with especially the generative AI. Uh, yeah, that's been kind of the, the topic. And I guess we can't avoid it in a CG podcast nowadays. Everybody uh, talks about it. I love talking about everywhere. AI. <laughs> I think we'd so be sick of it about... by now. <laughs> so let's, yeah, let's let's uh, maybe try to give it a spin on three uh, D assets and uh, and AI. Right. Like, how do you how do you view uh, AI's impact on three D assets creation and uh, like, uh, are you planning to use it or using it anyhow? Obviously, AI is is a very broad term that could mean a lot of different things, and and that's what makes it so exciting and interesting to talk about because it feels like this this magic technology from the future that has the potential to do anything. If you can imagine it, then it can be done eventually. Uh, that's the idea. Um, with the whole licensing thing, it's 
is quite interesting to follow uh, because I feel like it's it's not really built into our copyright law. Um, obviously, different countries have different laws and they're covered in, in different ways according to the AI models and how they're trained. Um, so it's difficult to talk about that. But, uh, you know, morally, if you look at it, obviously it's not okay to do things with somebody's art that they didn't want you to do. And they didn't know that it was possible to do that when they decided what license to use. You know, 10 years ago, would uh, Pixabay or Unsplash have chosen the license that they use knowing what was coming, what was, was you know, essentially coming to replace them? Um, it's, it's hard to say, uh, or at least, you know, Pixabay and Unsplash, they're companies and they have people behind them. But I think when you talk about Pixabay and Unsplash, you talk about more the photographers who shoot those photos and upload them, the, the community that creates that content. Um, and it's it's relatable to 3D art in a way. I think at the moment, the AI tools that are available for creating 3D assets are, are still very uh, infantile is, is the word I can think of. Um, they're not very capable. So at the moment, it's, it's not particularly scary to think, oh, Polyhaven is going to get replaced by this AI that can make textures perfectly. Uh, there are services for sure that already exist that you can use to to create textures, um, and I I choose to be a little bit more optimistic about it. Um, obviously, it affects me and it affects the people that I work with and you know feel responsible for in terms of you know paying them for their work. Uh, if if they're to lose their jobs because of AI, that kind of sucks, but. I, I'm generally an optimist in life, uh, which is strange. You know, I'm, I'm a very critical person, but I like to see myself as an optimist as well, where I, I kind of embrace our AI overlords. I think it's inevitable. And the sooner you kind of accept the changes that are going to happen and you, you adapt yourself to them, the better. We can sit here all day and, and argue about the morals and the ethics and the copyright laws, but that's not going to change the inevitability of what's going to happen eventually if it's five years or 10 years or 15 years. And if you want to be, you know, if you want to have a job by that point, you're going to have to adapt. But I also think it's not all doom and gloom. I think certain art, certain certain jobs, especially artistic jobs, like concept artists, they're the most vulnerable because what they provide to a client is more of a, I mean, it's in the name, a concept artist. So it's more conceptual. It's not necessarily something that has a solid defined value that's going to be used throughout the whole pipeline of a film. It's more of an ephemeral thing where it's to give inspiration to other artists to work from. So that's very easy to replace with AI. And there's a lot of people who have already lost their jobs because of that or are finding it harder and harder to find work as freelancers. Um, but I think things that are more, have have a lot more value in a film, like characters, 3D characters, is always going to be something that requires a lot of control, a lot of direct intent of how it is designed in terms of, everything about it, like the, the character design to begin with and how appealing it is and who that character is and their personality and how that's designed into their 
you know, their facial features and their proportions and how the topology is, is laid out to determine what the rig can do and how the rig is designed to determine how the character can move to do the things that was written into the story for them to be able to do. And all of that is very, it's a lot of work. And I don't see that being replaced anytime soon. I don't think the AI tools are, are strong enough to be able to do that. But for something like a texture, that's especially something photoreal, something that's based on images where there's already a lot of content available to train AIs, I think that'll be the first thing and already is the first uh, the first thing to try and be replaced by AI. Um, and I find that super interesting. <laughs> I'm not particularly afraid of it or worried about it. I think it's really cool that these tools can do that. Um, so we actually have, I think it's on our, our frequently asked questions page on our website, uh, we, we have the question there, like, can I train an AI model for your assets? And we say, absolutely, please do. The CC0 license is, is very clear about letting you do that, like anything you want. You don't have to worry about it. Um, and I think Polyhaven is, is particularly a really useful library for AI models to use because of the licensing and because of how careful we are about the quality of our content. We don't just... Um, what a lot of other texture platforms do, uh, at least a couple of years ago, it was very common, was the whole bitmap to material workflow where you can take a photo with your phone and then the software will generate a normal map and a roughness map and a whatever else that you need automatically and there's not much control over it. Um, what we do is a lot more involved than that where we do photogrammetry to get the height map and the normal map and the roughness map is is derived from a lot of different reference photos that we take and a lot of a lot of work to try and get that to look correct to the references um so it's it's i would say very high quality and that you know with any ai system if you have garbage input you'll get garbage output but if you can train it on good input maybe you'll get good output so i think we're particularly well um placed for people to train AIs off of our content. And I don't think that's a bad thing uh, for everyone. <laughs> I am not saying it's not a bad thing for us. I think, you know, if we don't do anything differently, if we keep doing exactly what we're doing right now, there is a very high probability that we won't exist in 10, 15 years because nobody needs us anymore. Nobody needs our content if they can get what they want from AI is much, much easier, much faster, or much more specific to what they're looking for. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll adapt. We, we've changed a lot in the last two years and I think that's going to continue. Yeah. I'm thinking of like one, one aspect of, uh, of the AI is kind of like remi reminding me of any kind any, any form of automation that is coming to, yeah. you know, to any industry, like exactly. for example, the music industry that has, you know, a lot of tools for, you know, easing the process of, of getting the music to sound right, or like the auto tune, for example. There's there's a thing that allows you know someone who can't really sing to sound good. But then you know, uh, then there's like a need for for people who who can really sing live, for example, or yeah, to look for some imperfection, for example, for example, like especially in art, like this human touch that that's not exactly machine perfect yeah so to speak and it's, it's yeah. like close to to 3d where we kind of all the time search for ways 
to do the opposite uh, to to what the photographers are yeah, pursuing, to make right? it the less perfection perfect. in photography, <laughs> and we are looking for the imperfections. Yeah, exactly. I mean, right? that's that's one of the main reasons why we stick to uh, photo-based assets is is the imperfections. Uh, I think a lot of other asset stores or, or platforms like uh, Polygon and Amiens CG, they do a lot of procedural work, which um, I spoke to Andrew at the Blender conference last year about Polygon. And I think he actually did a talk about it the previous year where he started, he, he realized that um, doing photo-based textures is, is, is a lot of work. It's a ton. It takes probably more than a week per texture of full-time work. Um, and he realized that if you can do that procedurally, it goes a lot faster and you can tweak the parameters to pump out a lot of different textures that are quite similar, um, which is a lot more profitable and a lot more of an efficient use of time. But what we found uh, is that we weren't satisfied with procedural textures. So we care about the quality of our work quite a lot and we're not satisfied with what you can get procedurally. Uh, you know, there are really good procedural artists people who can make something so convincing that you think it's it's photo-based and then you zoom in and things start to fall apart a little bit. Um, the procedural texturing workflow is is very good for what it's used for. If you're if you're making a procedural texture for a model, I mean James and Enrico as well are three artists. They use Substance Designer and Substance Painter all the time for texturing things. And they make a lot of procedural work for the texturing their models. But if you're making a texture, like a brick texture, then you're designing that to be used for a lot of different purposes at a lot of different scales. And it's very difficult to get that to look convincing uh, procedurally. And it is, in fact, in the end, less work to, to just photo scan a brick wall uh, at a high quality with a good camera. Now, probably, you know, with the procedural workflows that are and the AI stuff, some kind of hybrid approach would be, uh, would be still relevant, like yeah. using a, a little bit of proceduralism and a little bit of photo-based And that's, that's a little bit of what we do. I mean, you asked earlier, like, do we use AI tools? And, and we do. We didn't, like, we've been using them since before the AI craze. Um, there are some tools in our workflow that are based on neural networks that do things that are kind of difficult to do otherwise. Uh, one of them was recently killed by Unity, everybody's favorite corporate entity at the moment, um, called Art Engine, uh, which used to be a, a separate company, and they they made this tool for authoring textures, and then Unity bought them up, and it didn't wasn't as profitable as they liked, and then they killed it off. Uh, we're still using it. Uh, somehow there's a there's a bit of a, a hack to get it to keep working, um, and that tool has a few neural network based functions that you can use to to do things like help you tile your images easier, or generate displacement maps from normal maps, or um, do photometric stereo setups uh, easier and faster with the Chrome Sphere, and and there's certain things in that program that are based on neural networks, and you know AI as you said is is a tool at the end of the day. Uh, I don't think it's it's made to replace people's jobs. It's made to replace jobs, not people. And you know, for us, that makes life easier. And sometimes it doesn't do what you want. Sometimes it doesn't spit out the right result. And because it's a neural network, there's not necessarily a lot of control over that result. And you end up going have to do 
doing it manually anyway. Yeah, I guess you know people people mostly fear the AI thing because of a lot of a lot of misconceptions, like uh, like it's uh, it's sold also somehow in the in this mist of you know anthropomorph anthropomorphism that it's kind of like the you know people people have in mind you know these mo AI movies like uh, like uh, Kubrick's or this uh, space Odyssey where, where the computer kind of like gets its consciousness and uh, you know starts acting in, against us right yeah and i i guess it's uh, it's not really the case for at least for now what what is uh, capable uh, what is capable of is is just just like spitting out a lot of a lot of output but, and it's it sometimes seems like uh, it's a thought through output but it's just like a result of kind of cl clever algorithms that mix mix stuff together in a very yeah. clever way right? yeah which is you know it, it can be similar to what what people do creatively as well um but you know i i keep coming back to the fact that ai is is just a tool and it's not supposed to replace people it's supposed you know people's jobs it's it's there to help those people do their jobs better but obviously if your job is once one thing like concept artist is one thing that's just one part of a much larger pipeline. And there will always be tools, whether they're AI based or not, there will always be tools and automations that will, you know, optimize workflows to remove or automate different pieces of that workflow. So for us, you know, one of our main pieces of manual labor right now is seam removal, making textures tile uh, or tileable or seamless, where, you know, you take the, the raw photo scan and you manipulate it in a way that it can tile infinitely or repeatedly. And that's a huge amount of work because it can be quite challenging if there's, you know, patterns in it like bricks or tiles or, or wood wood floors and that sort of thing. It's difficult to get those, those lines to line up while still not looking like a seam. Um, and if we had a tool that could magically make that process go away and, and do it automatically. That doesn't mean anybody loses their jobs. That just means we can make more textures. Yeah, the funny, the funny thing about the seamless textures is like uh, you're aiming to get the textures to be seamless and then the 3D artists are doing everything to break it up <laughs> and to yeah. not, not make you know, any repetitions visible. Yeah, I was involved uh, for some time in contract work for uh, Grassfeld uh, for you know putting up uh, 3D scan uh, plants together, and it involved mm -hmm. a lot of manual work from from 3D artists. It's uh, like a lot of 3D scanned parts and and some you know some manual work. Like it was a um, kind of hybrid approach. I I won't say much because it's like a, yeah the, the workflow is. is of their own and it's like a little bit NDA by but uh, what I'm trying to um, to say is uh, that there's a lot of place for for a 3d artist and for for a human being to um, to make things look uh, realistic and so much closer to to what you see in the reality it's like it involves a lot of observation and a lot of you know irregularities and that's what nature is all about like there are patterns in nature. There's so much variety in every, even even in a single little plant. And it's and if you have like a whole meadow of, of these plants, it's like 
it's repetition, but it's all broken down everywhere. It's it's like a lot of noise inside. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So it's very interesting, like a place for uniqueness. Even though everything seems like it's is the same species, these are the same flowers, the same leaves, same stuff. But, uh, yeah. There's a lot of uniqueness in every little part. I think the 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 fun part about creating 3d art is, is combining combining different workflows together to to make interesting results and you mentioned it earlier about a hybrid approach to doing procedural and, and photogrammetry textures um, and i think that's that's the solution or that, that's necessary in a scene like making that seamless texture making those repetitions less noticeable you know if you have a two meter square brick texture but you have to tile it over a massive building doesn't matter if there's technically no seams you're still going to notice that repetition so you have to have this kind of hybrid approach with procedural mindset where you can use some procedural textures to mix different pieces of that texture together or, or layer some different color overlays and, and things like that and in nature it's the same like you said there's there's patterns and there's there's order to the chaos and there's some things that you can notice like the, the rules of how plants grow and how they branch out and what the leaves do and how they behave with the sun and where the flowers bloom and that sort of thing. But at the same time, there's, there's a layer of chaos in there that makes things interesting. Yeah. And it's also, it's so much dependent on the location or like a lot of, a lot of stuff. And, uh, I'll be, in fact, I'll be doing like a little presentation on this year's, uh, Blender conference about that, like trying to oh, nice. show it live on a plant, on a plant, one piece of a plant. Uh, and talk a little bit about these these little intricacies about uh, recreating nature's nature in 3D, which is an interesting topic, I guess. Uh, so the question is, uh, are you also coming to this year's Blender conference? Yeah, I am actually. I'm I'm quite looking forward to it. I'm I'm not quite looking forward to getting there, uh, <laughs> for more reasons than usual. But I mean, the the conference is always interesting. Uh, last year, especially, I'm not sure if you were there because it was the first year in in many years mm -hmm. since COVID that they had it at all. So there was a lot of people It was there. my first one. Oh, that's nice. And I was there. Yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, it, it was a lot of people were very happy to be there because they didn't have the opportunity in, in the previous years. Um, I think this year will be fun as well after, after that. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely coming. Uh, we were planning to come anyway, but we managed to organize a, a scanning trip to Germany um, the week before the conference, which is something I can't really talk about, but it's it's very interesting. Um, and I'm, I'm quite excited to share the results about that. I might do a, one of those lightning talks at the conference um, if we have something to share then. It's, it's not that we're not allowed to share anything. I'm just... I'm just too scared to talk about it in case we we don't succeed. Uh, but if yeah, we do manage no to, <laughs> yeah, exactly. If we do manage to do a good job of, of what we're going there to scan, then I think it'll be quite interesting. Uh, I would rather do a, a long talk about it because it's quite a interesting technical challenge. Uh, but if I can do a lightning talk instead, then that'll be a lot less stressful. All right. So Blender Conference is all about the Blender community. So. Uh, I would like to talk a little bit also about the community side of Holy Haven, because yeah. I know that you've been doing some community challenges. I think it's mo mostly on Discord, right? Yeah, I mean, we generally we use Discord for our, our main main communication channel between the team, um, and we might as well have the community there as well. So, uh, I think it was 2020 
ish um that i i organized a book cover design contest uh or i think i called it a contest uh, the idea was i i wanted to make a collection of books as an asset for people to put on shelves in the library um but you have that that old uh, licensing problem of like what what do you put on the covers of those books you know you can't steal other people's book cover book cover designs like from real books you know harry potter or whatever because that's not cc0 that's not compatible even if it wasn't cc0 you can't just steal people's intellectual property like that um so i needed a bunch of book cover designs and i decided to try and organize a, a contest and get some sponsored prizes of various blender add-ons and um you know, render farm credits and things like that, uh, training courses as well. Um, and got the community to design their own book covers uh, so that I could use that on the books and, and publish that on Polyhaven. I think at the time we were still doing 3D Model Haven. Um, and then while that whole project was happening is when we turned into Polyhaven. Um, but yeah, the idea was people would design their own book covers and I would put those on books. Uh, in the end, I struggled so much to make good books because I'm not really a 3D artist anymore. Uh, but eventually James, um, a 3D artist in Cape Town, he he managed to take those, those book cover designs and put them onto some really nice looking uh, books and make a whole procedural shader for the aging of the books and, and that sort of thing. Um, I think there were quite a lot. I'd probably be lying if I told you the number of how many covers they are, but I know there's so many that I kind of had to design the website around being able to display that many images nicely. Um, but it, it worked really well. And after that, we were quite interested in trying that idea of a community contest type of thing, but for 3D models. So that's what we did with the first community project, which, uh, if I'm not remembering it correctly, was the shed. Um, everything's been a bit of a blur the last year or two. But yeah, the, the first community project, the shed, we decided to try and ask our community to create models around this theme of a garden shed environment um, where we would create the scene and then we would work with the community on making assets for the scene. Um, so th this basically, this is all James's work. I kind of just gave him the idea and he ran with everything. Um, but yeah, it, it's a whole community effort of, of creating this environment and creating these assets and, and working together to critique each other's work and decide on what needs making and, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of work for, for James to review this content because we still have to maintain that standard of quality. We don't want to upload low quality assets, but it's really hard to tell someone like, I'm sorry, your work is not good enough. We can't publish it. Um, so it ends up being quite a lot of work for James and for the other more experienced members of our community uh, to, to help each other out and say like, Maybe if you if you did this, it would look better. Or could you try, you know, removing this vertex and optimizing the topology here, and and teaching basically doing a lot of teaching, uh, and in a way mentorship and and things like that, of helping people make good assets so that we can have good assets to to include in the collection. Um, and obviously, the ultimate goal there is not for us to get something from it; it's for us to. Uh, 
facilitate giving these assets to the community. You know, that's that's what Polyhaven is about is is uh, giving assets to the Blender community and everybody else. Um, so we're just here as as a kind of a a vessel, uh, a uh, facilitator to to help people come together and, and make assets around a similar theme. So our our previous community project that's wrapped up a few months ago was the alleyway, which James is is busy working on the scene for now. Uh, I think he's pretty much almost done. And that's the same thing. Like instead of a, a garden shed, it's a, a street alleyway in a city. So we had a lot of cool props like uh, tires and, and trash cans and, and things like that. And then James would work on the more bigger picture of the scene, like the buildings. Um, we were not really sure about the technical aspects and, and the, the guidelines or the, the standards that we wanted to have in place for modular assets. Uh, or for big things like buildings. So that's why James was tackling that himself. Um, but all the little props for the scene, you know, I think there's a couple dozen of them uh, that was made by people in our community for fun. You know, and we have sponsored prizes, like I mentioned, like little uh, render farm credits and, and some plugins and, and courses and things like that that people get. But I, d I don't think that's a main motivation for, for people to... <laughs> achieve it's not like oh you could win a rtx 4090 if you come first place in the competition it's more of just like a, a small incentive a small uh, like a, a thank you basically for uh, giving us your time and, and your effort um, that i think is quite nice to have so we're definitely going to keep doing that um, it's definitely a a very efficient way to publish 3d models on the site um, 3d models are by far the most work compared to textures and HDRIs. HDRIs, you know, I can shoot one in five minutes and I can stitch it in a day or two. Um, textures is more like a week on average, uh, depending on how complex the tiling has to be. But models, to make a good model, that takes a long time. So the, the community projects are a good way for us to, to keep adding more models to the site uh, as quickly as, as we do with the textures and HDRIs. Is there a kind of like a, a idea for future future topics or things, or is is it just like you come up with something and just go with it and not really have a like a roadmap or any future things that you can maybe you know spoil here or like <laughs> reveal um, to to us? Well, the the fun part about it being a community project is that I have no idea what's next. Uh, what we do beforehand um, before we decide is we. On, on Patreon, we make a poll for getting ideas. So people just, you know, send us text of what they think would be cool. And then we combine all of those suggestions into one massive list. And then we send another poll to Patreon and to the previous um, people who worked on the community projects. Um, and then everybody votes on what they think will be the best idea. So that's what we did for the uh, the alleyway. I think the shed, we kind of just decided ourselves of what would be the good good first project but the the alleyway we definitely did a poll and that was completely determined by the community so for the next one i have no idea i think maybe it will be a warehouse i think everybody was quite keen to do a, a warehouse kind of environment but uh we'll we'll see maybe they change their minds by then yeah so uh, like community challenges like as you mentioned like the the prizes uh, like there, there's like one one big uh, quite known challenge uh, that's done every half a year by um, 
Punisher, uh, Clinton yeah. Jones, uh, on the YouTube channel, and this, uh, you know, people are making the animations and they are really like super, uh, super nice prizes, like Rococo suits, stuff like that, like pretty expensive gear that, you know, a 3D artist would love to get, but yeah. really uh, only five people get it from the past, you know, pool of people who joined the community challenges. Yeah. And like, it's more about the fun, the learning, the, yeah, the community, right? Because it's, it's inspiring. People are help, helping each other out. Also, it's a it's a nice way to show off some of your skills or learn from others, get inspired. Yeah. I think for for us, one of the the nice parts about the the community projects is is the number of prizes that we have. Or, you know, I don't really like to call them prizes because that implies it's a competition and you have to be better than other people. Um, which is not really what it's trying to be. It's just trying to be like a fun community project that everybody works on something together. It's not trying to compete with each other. Um, and, you know, having more prizes available than there are people submitting assets means everybody who contributes an asset that's, you know, meets our technical quality standards, they get something from from the project, a small prize of some kind. Whereas if it was like the the Punisher um, projects and or the yeah the, those competitions, then only a few people get something out of it, and everybody else, you know, they enjoyed it, I'm sure, but they don't necessarily get something back. And I think for us, what you get back as well with our community projects is just seeing your asset online on Polyhaven that other people are using, and you know, if you care about that sort of thing, you can see, oh, wow, it's been downloaded by 100,000 people. 100,000 people have taken my hard work and have turned it into something else, something better, something more than just what it was, you know. And I think that's that's what motivates me when I'm working on assets is not just using it for what I want it for, but being able to let other people use it for, for what they want to use it for. And that's what's really interesting to me. Um, and I, I think... You know, I wouldn't say no if if uh, if uh, you know Nvidia or uh, Rococo has wanted to sponsor like massive prizes like graphics cards or motion capture suits, but it it would change the feel of the projects a lot, making it more of a, a competition, more of a a thing like I have to be better than other people, rather than I just want to make this cool thing <laughs> for other people to use or or to participate for the fun of it. Sounds great, uh, and it's um. You, know, you mentioned like uh, the things that that are that you enjoy about what you do. You know, uh, empowering other people. Like you mentioned, you are uh, behind the the Node Wrangler add-on. It's like the add-on that everybody you know, talks uh, about that it should be enabled by default, but it's <laughs> you always have to go to the preferences and enable it uh, unless you have it saved. Um, but I wanted to ask like a personal question uh, about the whole uh, your whole journey with 3d art and um because people start uh, to do that like i remember andrew price mentioning that he won he really wanted to make like that car render and that's why he started learning blender you know this kind of like a dream project uh, like someone uh, dreaming of making a game or a you know a movie whatever uh, like what what is your 3d dream that you would like to make someday and you haven't yet achieved <laughs> um yeah there is uh, just to go back to node wrangler i i feel i need to clarify like it's not all my work 
Um, it was originally called Node Efficiency Tools, which I think it was included in Blender by default by a guy called Bartek Skorupa or something. I think he's Polish, actually, so you'll probably pronounce yeah, it yeah. better than me. Um, I've, I met him a few times at the conference, and that was a really cool tool, and I just like added some a bunch of features on top of that. Uh, I don't know how much. Maybe it was like half-off between the two of us, and that was years ago, like 10 years ago or something like that. Um, and then... You know, it's been in Blender that whole time, and I barely touch it. I don't even maintain it anymore. It's, it's purely the Blender developers and other volunteers and contributors like adding more features um, to it. So, you know, it, it's not fair to say that I made Node Wrangler. It's it's like the Blender developers. Anyway, uh, I just feel mm -hmm. bad about taking too much credit, uh, but I do. I do very much enjoy thinking about the fact that like some of my hard work and some of the features that I'm most proud of are in Blender by default, even if you have to turn it on, uh, which is a, a whole other discussion that <laughs> we don't have time for. But yeah, I mean, what drives me or, or what I was getting into 3D in the first place for, what I was interested in, you know, my dream. Um, what I always wanted to do was make short films i think i was very inspired by the blender short films um big buck bunny and Sintel especially Sintel will always be my favorite i have Sintel as my desktop background even now um it's just a really good story and you know it's maybe not technically the best after all these years but it was a huge inspiration for me uh, getting into blender because they were working on Sintel while i was learning blender um and that was i think about late high school for me. So I, I was at a very formative age of learning what I wanted to do with my life. And I was always very keen on making short films, but it's so much work. Uh, I think I tried for a couple of months to do my own little short film, which was a terrible idea. Um, it didn't get very far, but it was, you know, it was, it was eye-opening. And that's always been something that I've dreamed of doing is, is working on short films or now like a, a video game would be great as well. Um, you know, Blender, the, the Blender Studio is doing open movie projects all the time, but I haven't really seen an open game project. And I'm getting more into video games uh, from a, a design point of view. Like, I don't know how to make video games. I barely know how to use Unreal. Um, but I'm very interested in in how the design of video games works and, and the mechanics and, and things like that. Uh, so I'm quite interested in one day making like an open game project using Polyhaven assets. Um, currently, our, our strategy for making assets is to travel to a location and, and shoot a lot of assets in that biome and then making a collection out of, of that environment. So we just recently came back from um, a sort of a desert environment that we went to. Um, it's sort of like a interesting succulent desert area it's normally very dry but for a few weeks at a certain time of year if you're very lucky then there's a lot of flowers and succulents and things like that so that was quite an interesting place and i'm really keen to see what that asset pack is going to look like but scaling that up uh you know if we had a much bigger budget and some more experience i think making a video game is something we would all be very keen to do you know you mentioned that making a, a movie or even a short movie if someone does it by himself, it's like a super challenging task. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, having a community that's running, uh, I guess that's the, that's the way to go to achieve that dream. Yeah. So maybe that's the last final question because we're kind of like over an hour right now, I guess. Uh, and I'm trying to keep the 
the episodes uh, a little bit concise. The last question would be about Blender because uh, the day we are recording right now is the day that uh, Blender 4.0 was released as beta and oh, 4.1 I think is in alpha right now. Okay. So it's coming and uh, I wanted to ask uh, about future Blender and what you are expecting most out of it, like the, the current version that is coming and maybe in the future, like what, what are you missing most in Blender, like, like what are you wishing for in future <laughs> Blender releases? Um, I really don't have much to complain about. I think Blender is insane. It's, it's amazing how far we've come. Um, I started using Blender in 2.49, I think. Um, I might have touched it a bit before then, I think 2.46 or so, and tried to do some things and gave up with a very confusing interface and then come back to it a bit in 2.49. And then I really started getting into it in 2.5 um, when the interface was improved drastically. Um, and you know these days there's so much more development happening there's probably hundreds of people working on blender daily and there's not a lot that i could say blender is missing i think you know if if you are working in a in a specific workflow and have been using other software previously then switching to blender you're obviously going to find some things that you're missing things features that you used to have that you think should exist in blender um that's inevitable i think especially for something like video editing uh, i've done a fair bit of video editing and occasionally i'll try to do video editing in blender and it's <laughs> it's difficult you know it is capable um it's just a little unintuitive and a little too dissimilar from what i'm used to um you know it's it's a little more difficult to do the same things even though technically you can and i think that's that's generally the the case for people coming from other software that's more specialized and focused but blender is this swiss army knife that can do anything you know it doesn't have a game engine anymore thank goodness but it's it's this massive thing that has so many features that you can use it for things it was never designed to do you know Blender is an animation tool. I don't make animations with Blender. Uh, what I what I use Blender most often for is is making HDRIs, and that's uh, a bit difficult to explain. But I mean, the compositor in Blender is effectively a procedural Photoshopping tool, or a, you know, a node based programmable. Uh, Photoshopping tool that you can feed a sequence of images and do the same thing. So I actually use it in my script that I, I use to um, merge HDR brackets together because I understand the math of how HDR bracketing works and how they're supposed to be merged together. Um, and I can reliably do that inside of Blender's compositor and I can understand how it works to make sure it remains linear and accurate and, and correct to uh, how it's supposed to be in order to give the correct lighting at the end, which you know, a lot of other merging HDR merging tools don't do because they're mainly focused on the photography workflow of making pretty pictures. Um, but I, I care more about like the math and the linearity of it. So that's that's what I use Blender most often for is that sort of thing. Um, I also use it for 3D printing. Um, we do a lot of, these days we do quite a bit of um, designing our own rigs for photo scanning. 
So photoscanning, photos, photoscanning, photoscanning is just niche enough that there's some tools that you can use to, uh, you know, scan things like ring flashes. Um, that you can just buy a ring flash and you buy a camera and you put them together and you can scan things. But in order to optimize your workflow and uh, combine these different tools together, you might need to make your own hardware, like, you know, attaching handles to flashes and that sort of thing. Um, so we do a little bit of that these days and I, I use Blender for that. And, you know, Blender is not designed to do that, but it has such a powerful modeling tool that you can use it for that. Uh, you know, it's not designed to do CAD work. It's probably better if I used a CAD program instead. But I know Blender so well that I can I can do it in there much easier than it would be for me to go and learn some other software. So I just, you know, pretty much anything image based or model based, I I would use Blender for it, even if there's a better tool out there somewhere. Yeah, sometimes it comes down to how know how good you know the tool. Exactly. Self. Uh, yeah, so I, uh, I think uh, one thing that's kind of developing rapidly in Blender is uh, is the geometry nodes and generally nodes. Like yeah. uh, one thing that's I think is coming to Blender 4.0 is the is uh, operators done by uh, combining nodes or stuff stuff like that. So it's kind of like already coming to a, something that that's um, more intuitive than just using Python. For right, exactly. And, yeah, I mean, nodes in Blender or in in most software, it's just programming, but visual. It's it's almost the same thing, uh, with some limitations about like which nodes exist. But you know, you see geometry nodes is, is huge now, and you see such interesting things made with it. Um, but you know, all of those things were already possible if you could write Python. Like you could make a tool or an add-on or a script that can do everything that you see geometry nodes doing today, you could do it five, 10 years ago, but the advancements of Blender these days are not focused on what's possible, but what's easy or approachable or uh, you know more intuitive to do for, for people who maybe don't know how to code so well. Uh, and geometry nodes is, is super interesting to that because nodes are just technical enough to be super powerful, but not so technical that they're, they're too difficult to approach. I'm just uh, thinking like whether you were uh, you were considering you know, like using using geometry nodes for you know generating procedural assets for for Haven. I mean, we do. We have. Um, I think all of our tree assets currently are using geometry nodes. Um, so Rico has been doing some crazy work with with making plants and trees lately. I think a lot of the stuff on the website is quite cool. But what I see these days that he's working on now with um, the the acid packs that we're working on from the desert and from uh, this other little location scout that we did, it's it's really amazing what you can do when when you give an artist who is quite technically minded um, better tools like geometry nodes. Uh, and so we've started publishing stuff like the trees where it is a geometry nodes asset. It's like you can go in and tweak things if you want to change the angle of the branches or how many leaves are there and that sort of thing, you can do it. Um, so we're definitely doing more of that, especially for, for nature assets. And I think we're going to consider doing it for um, modular things. Uh, James recently uploaded a uh, utility poles uh, 
asset where it's it's like a not a street lamp but like a, a power line pole um uh, asset i want to call it an asset pack but it's 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 really just like a, a modular asset that has a few different parts in it that you can connect in different ways and doing something with geometry nodes with that is perfect um, the one challenge and, and the reason we haven't really started doing more of it is we're still trying to figure out how to publish these things because you you kind of get two different use cases. You get the people who want to use it as a tool to generate their own trees and to tweak things and, and to make a bunch of different variations that suit their needs better than the defaults. And then you get people who just want to take the tree as it is and scatter it in their scene. They don't want to touch the geometry nodes. They just want to instance that thing everywhere. So we've been talking about making, like publishing two different versions of that asset. One that is more of a tool than an asset and one that's just a, an asset that can be scattered everywhere and not actually change that much. Yeah, that sounds, sounds interesting. And like, it's uh, hopefully we'll be growing in the future, like, like those trees yeah. in nature. Yes. Uh, We'll be wrapping things up now. I wanted to just ask uh, you, well, probably the audience already knows where to find Polyhaven, right? Uh, <laughs> are there any other, you know, places online where people can follow your work or contact you if, if they have more questions or, or are interested in joining the community challenges uh, where they should go look for? Yeah. I mean, uh, polyhaven.com is, is the main place to look at. And pretty much everything that I would suggest people look for is is linked on that website. So if you scroll down to the bottom, there's a bunch of different social media links. If you choose your platform of choice and you can follow what we're doing there. Um, if you want to get a little bit more involved in, in you know working with us on the community projects, then the best place would be our Discord server. Um, we have a fairly active community there, everybody helping each other out with you know, critiques of their work and, and sharing things all the time. Uh, that's where you can really talk to us if you're interested. Obviously, you can email us if, if that's your preference, but uh, Discord will be the fastest way to talk to anyone on the team. Yeah, great. So I'll make sure to leave the necessary links in the description of the show. And uh, thanks again, Greg, for joining me on the podcast and good luck with all the Holy Haven development. Yeah, thanks. It was, it's been fun. <laughs>